Hello, welcome back to The Other Side of Deaf. This is Crystal Hand, your host. It is the beginning of a school year, a time when every parent feels a little bit of anxiety of the pressure to make sure your child is prepared for school. Do they have all the school supplies, backpack, new shoes, clothes that fit? Have we done all the doctor's checkups and random appointments before school starts? Our hope every year is that we are going to be completely prepared, making the rest of the school year a breeze. But for some of us with a deaf child or a child with a disability or learning difference, there is an added item on the list. Does my child have all the accommodations set up they need to succeed this year? It is the biggest thing on the list for us. And it is the most scary because if we screw this up, it will make everything harder. That is why today I am breaking from my normal path of interviewing someone and going solo, talking about advocacy. It is the number one thing I help families with and something I have tried to master over the last 18 years. Now, disclaimer, I'm giving you some tips based on my experience as a parent and a family mentor, and we'll be talking about advocating for children, but please listen to all these tips and apply them either to your own situation or to help guide families you work with. Also, Deaf adults may have different tips or experiences, and I encourage you that if you can connect with a successful deaf adult, they can be a great resource. Also, my experience is based on working within the systems in the United States. For my international listeners, some of these tips may not be relevant, and within the United States, each state runs a little bit differently, so check with your state programs in order to find out what is available to you. Advocating for yourself or for your child can be very daunting, and over the years I have had a lot of success, but it came with a price. That price is learning from mistakes. So today's topic is the six biggest mistakes people make when advocating for themselves or for their child. And full disclosure, I have made every single one of these mistakes. So if you're listening to this and you think I've always done the right thing, you are wrong. The knowledge I am giving you today was hard won by a road full of difficulties. But I can tell you that if I can learn to navigate this road, so can you. So let's get started. The top six biggest mistakes people make when advocating for accommodations. Number one, being afraid of a label. For some reason in our label-obsessed society, when it comes to disabilities, we tend to try to avoid them. I have heard so many families and professionals say, I don't want my child to be labeled as having a disability, so I don't want them to get diagnosed or identified as such. This is a huge mistake. It is the equivalent to saying, if I don't know, then it can't be true. And in this case, ignorance is not bliss. Step one of advocacy is getting a formal diagnosis. Without it, you can't receive services. It can be hard for us to admit, and getting 
a final word that there's something different about yourself or your child can be a tough pill to swallow. It can feel like a swift kick in the gut, but there is also freedom in that label. What do I mean by that? Well, ask any parent who has been to countless doctor's appointments trying to figure out why their child is sick or not typically developing. But once you finally have a label, you have a roadmap. You have a direction to start, and you can start your journey based on the science and knowledge that is already out there instead of just trying to guess. Now, I know what some of you will say. Yes, but I don't want my child to know they have a disability because then they'll feel like a victim. I'm going to address this a little bit later, but for now, I'm just going to say this. Your child will never learn to ask for what they need if you make them feel like their diagnosis is something to hide. Learning to advocate and tell people what they need does not have to come with a poor me mentality. Don't treat your child like they're a victim and they won't grow up believing they are. So the first thing is getting that diagnosis. What level of hearing loss does my child have? How much can they hear with and without hearing aids? Does my child have any other developmental delays or is hearing difference the only thing? Is there speech or vocabulary deficits? Find out all of these answers because when you go to a school or into a doctor's office and you say, I would like this accommodation, they will ask you why. Particularly schools will ask you, why does your child need this? And you need to have a documented answer or you will never get anywhere. So get that label. That's step one. Okay, number two mistake that people make advocating for their children. Not knowing your rights. Okay, so this one is a little bit more specific to America. Although other countries probably have laws that align with this, I just don't happen to know them. But in America, we have the American Disabilities Act, or ADA. What is it? It is a law that states that businesses and schools that serve the public cannot discriminate against people with disabilities and need to provide them reasonable accommodations. So when most people think about this law, they think of something like public buildings need to have wheelchair accessibility. But ADA laws apply to all disabilities. And in the case of hearing loss, it means that appropriate accommodations for communication access have to be given based on the needs of the individual. So that can look like providing captions, sign language interpreters, special instruction, and so much more. I'll give you an example from my own life. When my daughter goes to the doctor, we ask for a sign language interpreter for her. Now, the first time we asked for this at a particular doctor's office, they told us we had to bring our own interpreter and pay for it. That was incorrect information. I kindly told them that actually it is required by law that their office provide reasonable accommodations for her at their expense because they are a public service. 
they are required to have that built into their budget unless it would cause a significant undue burden to their practice, which for a doctor's office is almost impossible. Upon hearing that, the receptionist checked with the office manager and realized I was correct and every appointment after that, they provided an interpreter via video conference. If I would not have known my child's rights, she would have gone years without accommodations. Side note, <laughs> I know some of you with younger children are thinking, well, I'm always with my child so I can make sure she understands. No, stop that thought right now. It sounds harsh, but your child needs to learn how to advocate for themselves. And the best way is for them to see it done for them when they are young so that when they turn 18 and are going to the doctor's office without you, they know how to do it and it's natural for them. It is important. They need to learn how to be independent. Now, I'm not talking about your six-month-old and you need an interpreter for her. But if you have a fifth grader or a sixth grader, absolutely they should be getting those services. It also teaches them that it is no big deal. Again, going back to teaching your child that they don't need to hide their difference, showing them how to ask for accommodations empowers them to be independent and not rely on other people. I know that I am speaking to parents right now, but this goes for deaf and hard of hearing young people too. Be bold. Learn what your rights are and ask for them. Take control of your accommodations and your future. In addition to ADA laws, there are also special education laws in America that you need to understand when your child is in school. Again, all schools in the United States are required to provide accommodations for students with disabilities and make sure they get a free public education. But I'm going to tell you a little secret. Schools are required to give you accommodation based on the needs of your child if you ask for it. However, if you don't ask for something, they do not have to offer or advertise services to you. I see so many students out there that are not getting the accommodations they need because parents didn't know that they were allowed to ask for it. This is why it is important to know what your diagnosis is and what your rights are. I could do an entirely different podcast complete with hundreds of <laughs> episodes on individual education plans and 504s, but I don't have time for all that right now. So I won't go into specifics today, but just know you have rights as a parent and your child has rights. And just so we have a basic understanding of some of those things, before I move on, I'm just going to give you four short points that every parent should know about their child's education. Without going into too much detail, because like I said, this is a big topic and I can't cover it all. But what you need to know are these four things. Number one, you are an equal partner with your school deciding what is needed for your child. They should include you in all decisions in accommodations or changes to your individualized education plan or 504 if you have one. Don't just accept them, quote, writing an IEP and giving it to you. 
be a part of that process. <clears throat> Number two, an IEP is a legal document and must be updated yearly, but you can open it at any time. And it can be opened by you or any other member of the IEP team. That means it can be updated or changed throughout the year as needed. And it is required that the staff at the school follow the plan. It is a legal document. So make sure you know what's in that plan and are tracking if it's being followed and if the accommodations are working towards the desired goals. Okay, number three, a school cannot say, quote, we don't have a budget for that for an excuse for not providing accommodations. Now that doesn't mean they have to give you everything you want, but they must come up with reasonable accommodations that will get you to your goals. Number four, there are ways to problem solve and get advocacy for your child if you feel you are not getting services that they need. Most states have some sort of organization where you get someone to come to meetings and advocating on your behalf when things are not going correctly or they have a problem-solving plan in action for when parents are unsatisfied with their education plan. Make sure you figure that out on where you live, on what that process is, if you need it. Like I said, I could do an entire podcast on advocacy just in IEPs, but I don't want to get too in-depth here. I will point you to a great resource that I've used in the past. It's called Rights Law Advocacy, Right with a W, R-I-T-E-S. Um, I'll provide the link for the description, or you can just Google it. Um, they are a website which has great resources for advocating and has great articles. You can sign up for their newsletter. Articles are specifically on special education laws. It's a great resource. Now, I know some of you are out there thinking, holy crap, I don't have time or the energy to learn all of this. First of all, you would be surprised how much you learn when you need it. But also, you don't need to know everything all at once, but just what your child needs at that time. And there are great resources out there to help you. Probably the best resource is to find someone who has already gone through that stage of life or school that can help you navigate what you need to know. Community is incredibly important in this. I have been doing this for 18 years, and I still learn things from other parents and deaf adults, so don't be afraid to reach out and ask questions. Okay, number three on mistakes people make advocating. Number three, talking to the wrong person. We have all witnessed some person in a store or restaurant cussing out a cashier for something that that person had no control over. The terms of a coupon or the quality of a product, the, the cashier may be the front face of the store or a restaurant, but they don't actually have the power to make any decisions for that company. The same goes with schools, doctor's offices, and general businesses. Going back to the example of requesting a sign language interpreter for my daughter's doctor's appointments, the receptionist didn't know what the requirement was, but the office manager did. In that case, I needed to give the receptionist time to talk to that person that actually knew the information and had, and had control of making the right decisions. This is incredibly important when you are advocating in schools. 
I have had so many parents call me and say, I talked to the principal and he didn't do anything. Well, the answer is he was the wrong person to talk to. Principals of schools oversee everything in the everyday life of a school. But just like you wouldn't go to a principal to talk about your child's mental health issues, hopefully you would go to the guidance counselor for that. The same goes for special education. A principal or vice principal is going to know basic facts about special education, but they may not know all the ins and outs of what the school legally is required to provide and the school education's resources in that school district. In every school district, there is or should be a special education director. That is the person that is in charge of making sure the school district is complying with all the special education laws. So when you're advocating for your child and you need to go up the, the chain, the special education director is your person. Now, I'm going to make a note that you should never start at the top of the chain. Part of advocating is working your way up the chain until you get satisfactory results. For example, if you have an issue with your child not getting services in a particular class, the first thing you need to do is talk to their teacher. See if there was a misunderstanding or a reasonable workaround. More often than not, people don't accommodate because they don't know any better. They don't know why it's important. This isn't just in schools. This is everywhere you go. People don't know what they don't know because they don't have to deal with what you are struggling with on a daily basis. So make them understand. If you don't get results talking to a teacher, talk to their caseworker. If no results there, then go up to the special education director. Find the people that have the power to change the outcome. I'll give you an example of how this played out in my life. A few years ago, my son was in middle school, and in his IEP, it stated that the teacher had to give him notes before class so that he could focus on what was being said. The reason for this is that you can't look at your paper to take notes and look at the teacher to read lips and understand directions all at the same time. It's physically impossible. So providing notes allowed my son to have full access like every other hearing child by having notes and being able to listen at the same time. But every school year, I always had one teacher that didn't want to follow the IEP because they thought it was unnecessary. And this particular year, we had a teacher that was like that. So I called the teacher and I asked if I could meet with him. We chatted and he said, well, I think he needs to learn how to take notes like everybody else because he'll have to do that in high school and college. I explained to him that no, his IEP can include this in high school and college ADA laws will make sure he, is, he has reasonable accommodations so he can continue to have access. An entire IEP team came up with these accommodations because they are needed, so please follow them. After the meeting, my son told me that nothing had changed, so I had to talk to the teacher of the deaf, and she had a conversation with the teacher, letting him know why it was so important. It helped for a hot minute, <laughs> and then the teacher would consistently forget to give notes. At this point in time, I sent an email to the teacher and copied the special education director on it, and I explained that if 
we were not following the IEP, the school was in direct violation of the law and would need to address this in a meeting with me. Within two days, I got a call from the special education director letting me know that it had been handled and Luke would be getting accommodations from now on without question. I don't know what the conversation was with the teacher and the special education director, but I do know that I got results. I gave the teacher the benefit of the doubt. I provided ample opportunity for them to correct the actions. And in the end, my son got the accommodations he needed because I talked to the right people. Going up the wrong ladder, talking to the wrong people will only give you frustration. Make sure you do your homework on the best and easiest way to get results. Okay, number four mistake that people make advocating for their children. Trying not to rock the boat. If you have ever met me, you will know I am a people pleaser. I do not like confrontation. Whenever I do have to confront people, I get physically nervous and shaky and my anxiety of how things will play out runs in a thousand different directions. I don't like rocking the boat. But I learned quickly that if I was going to set my children up for success and advocate for them, I had to rock the boat sometimes. I had to get over my fear and do what needed to be done. I decided a long time ago that when it comes to my children's health and education, what they needed is more important than me being liked. I would walk into meetings and think, I am not here to make friends. I am here to make sure my child has what they need. When I framed it like that in my mind, I could stand up for myself and my child without reservation. Because the truth of the matter is, this is my job. This is my expertise. Sure, I didn't get paid to advocate for my own children. I don't have fancy letters behind my name. But I am the expert on my child. I have a PhD in Luke and Samantha Hand. I know more than every professional that is in their lives. I manage the big picture. And as their mother, it is my job to make sure that they have what they need. So when I walk into a school meeting or I make a phone call on their behalf, it's business now. I am not, quote, just a mom, which is a phrase I hate, by the way. I am my child's representative. I'm their advocate. So I have to man or woman up and do my job, no matter how uncomfortable. That means I need to do my research, ask questions, have an open mind to alternative solutions, and work within the system. But it also means I don't have to accept the status quo. I don't have to just go with what they're telling me if I know it isn't what's best. I don't have to tell my child, well, that's just the way it is. Sorry, deal with it. I have a responsibility to be my child's voice when they don't have one and teach them how to use it as they grow up so that they can do so when I'm not around. Because let's face it, this world is unkind to all of us. It will not be easy for them all the time. But by showing up and fighting for them when needed, I am teaching my kids two things. One, they always have someone that will support them in whatever they need. And two, 
they are worth advocating for. They don't just have to go along with others. They can advocate for what they need. And it isn't an inconvenience because they are just as important as everyone else. So rock the boat, make noise if you have to, and set your children or yourself up for success. Okay, number five. This is probably the hardest one and the one that I've had the most lessons in. Number five, burning bridges. This is one of the biggest mistakes people can make. Even though I just said I don't like confrontation, like most moms, when it comes to my children, I can go from calm to fierce in about 2.5 seconds. When my children are not being treated fairly or when someone tries to deny them accommodations, I tend to only see red. I become the literal definition of a mama bear. My first reaction is to rip the person who is causing my baby's pain apart. That is my first and natural reaction. But over the years, I have figured out that when I unleash this part of me when advocating for my children, I tend to do more harm than good. You see, in any particular area, unless you live in a big city, the number of providers that specialize in what your child needs is probably going to be small. So if you have a problem with someone, they are going to know most of the other providers in the area. And yes, they talk. Also, depending on how things go over the course of several years, you may see this provider again without having many options. I will give you an example. My children had an early intervention provider that I was not super excited about. She was okay, but she wasn't my favorite. We had her for a year or two, and then my children were assigned to someone else, and I thought, great, I don't have to deal with her anymore. A few years later, I walk into a meeting to be introduced to the new deaf and hard of hearing teacher that was assigned to our district, and lo and behold, it was her. Well, crap. Luckily, <laughs> I left on good terms with her because now she was going to be working with my child again. And before you ask, yes, I could have fought and tried to get a different provider. But then I ran the risk of my child going weeks or months without any services because there were only so many providers out there and they all had big caseloads. So what was best for my child? Well, it was me swallowing my mama bear rage and working with her to get a good outcome. And here's the thing. If you are working with a teacher or therapist, they got into this profession because they chose it. They want to help. And sometimes, for whatever reason, they may not be on top of their game when they're working with you. Maybe they are disgruntled from being beaten down by educational systems that are difficult to work in. Or maybe they have dealt with hundreds of families that have been horrible to them. Or maybe they just have something going on in their personal life that's just kicking their ass. And although this is not an excuse for them to not do their job, it is the parameters that you're working with. Most providers want to help your child. They want to do the right thing. They just may not have the resources, knowledge, training, or capacity to accomplish that. So the best way to help is to work with that person to figure out the best strategies that will work for your child. It isn't ideal, but you can make it work. 
as a parent or if you're advocating for yourself, it is hard to not let things get personal when things are not fair. It is easy to see rage. But going back to the thought, it isn't personal, this is business, you need to keep your emotions in check. How do you deal with a disgruntled customer at work? Well, you don't fight with them, that's for sure. You come up with a solution to get what you both need that works for both of you. Because if you come in hot, you'll regret it. I'll give you an example. There was one time that I went to pick up my children from a sports practice. And when I arrived, the person that was supposed to be helping them with accommodations so they could understand the coach was nowhere in sight. The coach was talking to the group and I could tell my kids were just lost. And full disclosure, I had had a bad day at work. And in that moment, I couldn't contain my mama bear tendency. I marched down to that coach's office after practice and I let my fury fly. Now understand, this is the coach's first offense. He was normally very accommodating. So this wasn't a pattern of him purposely leaving my kids out. But at that moment, all I could see was my kids being left out. And I yelled at him for about 10 minutes and walked off in a huff. And then I looked at my kids and I saw horror on their face. Both of them were completely embarrassed by me. They were angry because they were old enough to say, Mom, I could have handled that. I was asking my friend to help me fill in on what I missed. And how dare you yell at the coach that I like? I later apologized to the coach for freaking out and worked on how to best accommodate my children and make sure it didn't happen again. But before this incident... The relationship between our family and this coach was great. He was routinely going out of his way to help my children. And after this, he walked on eggshells around us. And it was never the same. I damaged that relationship between him and my children. And think about it. If someone came to your place of work and just starts yelling at you for something you did wrong, how likely are you going to be like, yeah, I want to go out of my way for this person? No, no. You wouldn't. Nobody would. In fact, if you work in a restaurant, you would probably spit in their food. It's the same with providers. When you act in a mature manner and give someone the benefit of the doubt and try to work with them as a team to get what your child needs, then they are more likely to say, yeah, that mom is just trying to do what's best for their child. She's willing to work with me. But if you come in and berate them, you may win the fight but you will have caused significant damage to your cause. Now, does that mean you can't have a moment of anger when things don't go right? No. If you can get to that point that you never let your emotions get the best of you, then you are a better person than me. I have yet to master that. But what I can tell you is that you can train yourself to stop before you speak. I have written so many nasty emails over the years that I have never sent. I write them out and then I tell myself I have to wait 24 hours before I send it. Usually by that time, I can go back and reread it and edit it so that it is much more diplomatic. I have also walked away from many conversations before and said, you know, I'm really upset at the moment and I need a minute to think about how I want to handle this. Can we revisit this later? Even if it's just a 10 minute break from the conversation. And just so you know, I still have moments of anger and temper tantrums that I 
get out of my system before I go back into the advocating game. I've been married for over 23 years, and my husband has heard all my rantings. And sometimes I say to him, babe, I'm going to have a little temper tantrum here and say everything I'm thinking. I just need you to listen and not take offense because this isn't directed at you. I'm just pissed off and I need to let it out. When I say that, he knows, just let her ramble. And he probably just tunes me out and that's okay. Because sometimes I can just get my yelling fit out and walk back to the offending person calmly. Side note and pro-marriage tip, <laughs> if your spouse is doing this, don't give them advice unless they ask for it. Just listen and allow space for all the feelings. And if you're the person yelling and having the temper tantrum, make sure that you don't beat your spouse up. They aren't the person you're mad at and make sure they know that. Okay, back to the point. The point is you can have your emotional outburst in private. But just like you wouldn't have a temper tantrum in a boardroom, you shouldn't do it when advocating for your child. Now, that doesn't mean you just have to accept what you get as far as providers or services, but you just have to do it diplomatically. If you have a therapist that isn't a good fit, go to them first and say, hey, this isn't personal, but I feel like your teaching style isn't a good fit for my child. Is there a way we can work together to change things or get something or someone that may be a better fit? A good therapist will understand and either come up with a different plan or refer you to someone else. Because if they are honest, they may feel the disconnection too. If that doesn't work, you can move up the chain to get what you need. But just remember to be respectful at all turns. Remember, there is a balance of getting what you need without leaving a path of destruction. Okay, last but not least, mistakes that people make. Number six, not allowing your child to advocate for themselves. This is for the parents of older children. Starting in middle school, you should start taking your hands off the wheel and start giving them the reins. For a parent, this is hard, especially if you have fought battles for years and it is hard to let go. But the truth is, as I've said before, your child needs to learn how to do this on their own. And starting in middle school, they need to start feeling like they have some control in their life. So what does that look like? Well, in middle school, before every IEP meeting or doctor's appointment, I would sit down with my children and go over what I was going to be talking about in that meeting or appointment, and I would ask, what do you feel that this person needs to know? For example, every year, I would go over the IEP draft with my child. We would read it together, and I would say, tell me, what is the hardest thing for you at school? And we would talk about it and find out, is this something that is deafness-related and if so, what things can we suggest or ask for that might make this better? I would also ask, are there accommodations that you have that you don't feel that you need? And we would discuss on why or why not they do or do not need that particular service. Then when I would go into an IEP meeting, I would have the notes from my conversation with my child and I could speak on their behalf. Once they got to high school, they were old enough to attend their own IEP meetings. I would let my children know they needed to be at this meeting. I would be there to help, 
but they are going to start speaking up for themselves. I would help them prep for it, but in the actual meeting, they would be doing most of the talking. I would also have my children have a copy of their IEP in their backpack. So if a teacher wasn't providing accommodations, they could pull out the IEP and say, in my IEP right here, it says, I need this. I really need you to follow this. We have found that at the high school levels, that teachers respond better to children advocating for themselves than the crazy mom who just keeps calling. Because again, most teachers want their students to succeed. And if your child comes to them and says, this is what I need to be successful in your class, more often than not, that teacher will try their best to help. And as someone who now has a child in college, I can tell you these skills transfer directly into real life. There have been so many times that my son has called me and said that he had this problem or that problem, and he fixed it on his own by advocating for himself, and sometimes has helped his friends get what they need by showing them how to do it. You can't be around your child every step of the way. Whether you want to admit it or not, they are going to grow up and live their life. And if you want them to be independent and successful, when they grow up, you have to give them the tools to advocate for themselves while they are at home in your care. And along with that, you need to make them understand they are not a victim in life. I would routinely tell my children that they can't expect other people to do more for them than they are willing to do for themselves. Don't expect a teacher to go above and beyond for you if you aren't even trying to do the homework. Don't expect someone to give you everything without you putting in an effort. You can expect them to match your effort but don't expect them to do more than you are willing to do for yourself. Being deaf does not mean that you can't do things. It may mean it's a little harder than it is for others, but it doesn't mean you can't do it. So don't make excuses. And if you want to go out and do something, figure out what you need to make that happen and ask for it and do it. You can have a pity party for five minutes, but after that, Get it together and get to work. It sounds harsh, but you can either be a victim or a success, but you can't be both. Okay, so there you have it. There are probably some steps in there that you didn't like to hear or you may disagree with. This is just advice from what I have seen in my own life and those that I have coached over the years. I hope you can learn from my mistakes. We all need to learn how to work the system to make this a deaf-friendly world. And I am still learning and continue to learn every day. My family still makes mistakes, but we learn from them and we move on. And I encourage you to do the same. So go out there, make things happen, pave the way with high expectations, and remember, we can do hard things. And with that, if you're just tuning in for the first time to my podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of my previous episodes from last season, where we discuss an array of topics from all different perspectives. Don't forget to like and subscribe to my channel. And if you really like my podcast, check out my Facebook and Instagram pages, and of course, share with your friends. Also, check out my YouTube channel, where I have the first three episodes of the podcast interpreted into American Sign Language and we'll be continuing to add more as time goes on. 
Stay tuned for future episodes coming out. But until next time, I'm signing off.